appreciate everyone being here again this evening. Good to meet together at the end of the Lord's Day and uh, encourage each other and sing and pray together and worship together. First of all, our, our uh, hope is that God is pleased with our efforts, but uh, we also understand there's sort of a, as we talked about this morning, a horizontal effect to our, to our uh, efforts today that we encourage each other, and uh, hopefully that's been the case t- this morning and then again this evening. Hope you brought your, brought your Bibles with you, either on your phone or in the old-fashioned way in this form. And we're just going to do some Bible study tonight. So I want to turn to the Old Testament and talk about uh, the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, you might be thinking, wait, didn't you talk about that last week? And that's right, I did. And so we sort of introduced the idea last week, and we're going to advance it, uh, that idea, that discussion a little bit tonight. The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament can be described using the words continuity and discontinuity. And so, there's connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. What the Old Testament talks about is picked up by the New Testament, and the New Testament continues to talk about it. And so, there's continuity between Old and New, and there are various themes, several themes that run right through the Bible from the very beginning all the way through the end. There's discontinuity. There's, there's maybe a disconnection, uh, we might say, between old and new. And really that's what we talked about last week. We talked more about the discontinuity, the disconnection between the Old Testament and New Testament, or Old Covenant and New Covenant. And remember what we said was, and, and looked at several passages, Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, Galatians 3 and 4, several passages in the New Testament that talk about how the Old Covenant has been taken away so that a New Covenant might be established. Even the Old Covenant itself looks forward to that, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And so, since the Old Testament, Old Covenant, with its law, has been taken away and replaced by the New Covenant, well then, its laws, its rituals, its practices, its sacrifices and priesthood, its temple, those kinds of things are no longer binding on us today. And so the law is not binding on us today. The, uh, the uh, sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, not binding on us today. It's practices and rituals like circumcision and other practices and rituals found in that old law, that old covenant, not for us today. However, there is continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. And we might highlight two ways in which they are connected. We said last week that since the Old Testament is the Word of God, remember that's one of the questions that we asked about the Old Testament, is it the Word of God? And yes, we looked at statements from the Old Testament itself and statements even from the New Testament that suggest that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Since it is the Word of God, it speaks the truth. It's true in what it says. And so when it says that God is eternal, that God is from everlasting, that's true. That's the truth. When it says that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, almighty, well, that's true. When it says that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, well, then that's true. When it says that God is compassionate and merciful, well, that's, that's true. And we can see a number of examples in the Old Testament in which God's 
mercy and loving kindness are on display. When it says that God is going to come in judgment against evildoers, well, that's true. And we can see examples of that in the Old Testament as well. So, and so what the Old Testament is true, no wonder then that the New Testament writers reach back into the Old Testament and use the Old Testament to support what they teach. Because what the Old Testament says is the Word of God and as a result is true. A second connection between the Testaments relates to the information we have concerning the coming Messiah, His kingdom, His covenant. The Messiah is coming. God's anointed one is coming. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to introduce a, co a covenant. He will have His law that's uh, binding upon men. There are dozens of passages in the Old Testament. Some would say hundreds, but I'll, I'll say at least dozens of passages in the Old Testament that look forward to the coming of Christ. And the New Testaments either quote or allude to these Old Testament passages with great frequency. So they use the Old Testament to prove their teaching with quotations of Scripture just like we do. So Paul might be making a point and trying to establish his point and he'll reach back into Scripture, an Old Testament passage, to support his teaching. That's what, that's what we do. That's what we ought to be doing. Establish what you teach by Scripture. In fact, if we look at the New Testament, and maybe especially some of the sermons of the New Testament, we can see that there are some passages in the Old Testament that the, the teachers and the writers use over and over. A, a preacher will have certain go-to passages. And so if he wants to talk about how we're saved by faith, he'll have a collection of passages in his mind and, and he'll go to them. Or if he wants to talk about baptism, the passages that he has in mind, he'll go to them. Well, that's, not, that's not new. That's been done for a long, long time. There are certain passages in the Old Testament that we find alluded to or quoted several times in the New Testament. And really that's what I want to talk about. Some of the passages that we are in the Old Testament quoted multiple times in the New. And in that we can see the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter, well, we'll start in chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Now we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 53, but the passage, Isaiah 53, the beginning of it really is found at the end of chapter 52. This is one of those places where the chapter division is a little unfortunate. It might have been better if the chapter started in Isaiah 52 beginning in verse 13. This, this is a passage, this is really the last passage in a section of Isaiah that, that, that discusses the servant of the Lord. And so beginning in chapter 41 and going through chapter 53 of Isaiah, you find these references to the servant of the Lord, or the servant. And uh, we see, we're going to see certain attributes connected with him. In that section of Isaiah, we find that the servant is a gentle and mild person who's been chosen by God to be the light of the nations. And so he's going to bring light to the nations. He's treated brutally. Isaiah 50 and verse 6, for example, says... He uh, gives his back to the smiters, uh, to those who will smite him. So here's someone who's, who's smitten on the back, whipped on the back. He's cut off from the land of the living. We'll see that in Isaiah 53. 
to bear the sins of the people. And so that's some information garnered from this section, gentle and mild. It's been chosen by God to be a light to the nations, rejected by many, treated brutally, cut off from the land of the living. He's killed, but in doing all of that, he bears the sins of the people. And of course, these passages are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the servant of the Lord who suffers to make atonement for sin. And so here's our passage. We're going to talk about the suffering servant from Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13 and going through chapter 53 and verse 12. Now this passage is quoted at least seven times in the New Testament. Now, may, maybe more than that, but at least seven times in the New Testament. It was one of the passages that's sort of at the heart of first century gospel preaching. And we'll see that, I think, as we, as we look at how it's used in the New Testament. Some believe it provides the undergirding for entire sections or even entire books. For example, uh, the Gospel of Mark, which emphasizes the suffering of Christ, may look back to this passage that discusses the suffering servant. It's been called the summit of Old Testament literature and the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing Old Testament prophecy had ever received. And when you think about Isaiah 53, those are pretty good descriptions of, of the passage. We can divide it up into five stanzas, and that's the way we're going to divide it up in our, our study tonight. Five stanzas, three verses each. It begins with a note of triumph, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up, and it ends with a note of triumph and victory. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And so it begins and ends with triumph, with victory. Now, in between, there's a lot of suffering described. And so, but, but the idea of victory and triumph and God's blessing uh, really should not be far away from, from our thinking. The first section, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, might be described as conveying the mystery of the servant. God speaks in this section, and He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Notice there, my servant. There's this one of those passages that deals with the servant of the Lord. He's going to prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they see, and what they had not heard they will understand. And so some of this is a little challenging for us maybe, but uh, I think we can get the idea. The servant is going to prosper. And he's going to be high and greatly exalted. He's going to enjoy great success. He's going to achieve. He's going to be accomplished. He's going to enjoy great position as well. But the appearance of the servant is described. It says that his appearance is marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And so think about the combination of those two ideas. He's going to prosper. He's going to be high and highly exalted. And yet he's going to be disfigured beyond recognition. He's going to be marred more than, than any man. He's simply going to be unrecognizable. And so this combination of qualities, high and exalted, and yet disfigured beyond recognition, 
enables him then to sprinkle many nations. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. And so there's something about the servant of the Lord and his experience that enables him to sprinkle the nations. Now, in, in what kind of activity are things sprinkled in the Old Testament? Well, that's an atonement word, isn't it? Uh, the blood is sprinkled to make atonement for sin. So if you go back to Leviticus chapter six, uh, 4, verses 6 and 7, the priest sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice in that exercise that makes atonement for sin. And so that, that kind of brings that idea to the surface, the word sprinkle. And so he's going to be high and exalted, he's going to be lifted up, and yet he's going to suffer and be disfigured, but he's going to sprinkle, he's going to provide atonement for the nations, the people, even kings, who look on him are at a loss for words. They, they don't know what to say. They're dumbfounded when they see the combination of greatness and weakness in the servant. They've never seen anything like it. And so it says, the kings shut their mouths on account of him. They have, they've never heard anything like this, never seen anything like this before. All right, so let's go to the, then to chapter 53 and look at the next section here. This, we might summarize this with the words, the rejection of the servant. The servant of the Lord is rejected. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the suggestion is a lot of people have rejected the message. Very few have, have believed the message. And so who has believed our message? Very few. And to whom has the arm of the Lord or the strength of the Lord been revealed? Now he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, and has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And so, you see, especially in the third verse, each stanza has three verses. In the third verse, you can see the rejection of the servant of the Lord. And so people are unimpressed with him. He looks like a common, ordinary, very weak, maybe even offensive person of low rank. He's the kind of person, when you look at him, you just want to turn away. And so, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. And so we've already talked about his disfigurement, he's marred beyond any man. And so when you see him, oh wow, you're, you're, you're very uncomfortable and you want to hide, hide your face. He's despised. He's, he's looked at with contempt. People forsake him. They, they don't run to him. They run away from him. They hide their faces. They don't esteem him. They don't have respect for him. They don't have regard for him. In fact, as we go a little bit further, they consider him to be smitten and afflicted of God. God has dealt with him harshly because he is an offensive person. And so you see that at the end of verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So he's such an offensive person to, to the masses. God must be doing this to him for something that's just in his character, something objectionable about him. And so he's rejected. The next section we can summarize as the atonement of the servant. 
He's making atonement for sin. Now this is the middle stanza. Notice that, just the way it's put together. You have the first two and the last two. And so this is the middle one. And so in some ways that we focus our attention on the middle stanzas to really highlight that, that middle portion. And so the third stanza, we're told, the reason for his humiliation. And so the atonement of the servant. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And so why did he go through this? Why was appearance marred? Why was he disfigured? Why was his back given to the smiters? Well, it wasn't for his own transgressions or his own offenses. He, he, he was bearing our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And so the masses didn't understand that. So you think about when Christ was crucified, the masses didn't understand what was going on. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so he bore our griefs and sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, the iniquity of each and all of us. Now notice that all we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us. And so you have that collective all and then you have the individual. All of us have gone astray, each one of us has turned away. And so, He has borne the iniquity of each and all of us. The punishment for our sin has been placed on Him. And as a result of His work, we are healed. By a scourging, we are healed. We're here healed spiritually of our transgressions and of our sins and of our iniquities. That's what He's talking about in the passage, our iniquity, our sin. And so we're healed of that. And uh, we enjoy well-being. The chastening, the discipline, the punishment that produces our well-being, our shalom, falls on Him. And so far from being a weak, contemptible victim of wrongdoing of some kind, the servant of the Lord was making atonement for our sin by His suffering. The fourth stanza uh, can be uh, described as the discussing the submission of the servant. And so let's read that, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so, so he did not open its mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so the servant of the Lord submits to the mistreatment, to being smitten and pierced and chastened. He's oppressed and afflicted. He submits to that. He's killed, but he doesn't resist. He doesn't fight against it. He goes peacefully and willingly without resistance like a sheep, to the slaughter. Of course, when you look at Jesus and what leads up to His crucifixion, He, he goes without resistance to the cross. And so He submitted to death. He submitted to being associated with the wicked. 
he submitted to the tomb. Now, he had every reason to resist. He had every reason to insist, I'm not being treated fairly. I'm not being treated justly. And yet, he submitted uh, to the Father's will and went to these things instead. And then the last stanza can be called the exaltation of the servant. And so verse 10, the Lord is pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. And so, this stanza tells us that the Lord raises him up. The Lord is pleased and satisfied with what the servant does, offering himself as a guilt offering. And so the servant will prosper, verse 13. He will see his offspring, the disciples of Jesus. He refers to them as, as his children. So, and so he will have disciples that follow after him. His days will be prolonged. And so in the case of Jesus, he's crucified and raised from the dead, and his days are prolonged. He'll have an inheritance with great men. He'll be rewarded as the victor over the enemy. And so when he's raised up, he leads captivity captive. You remember that expression from Ephesians chapter 4. And so he is given the victory over the enemy. There are four reasons why he's rewarded in this way. He poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he interceded for the transgressors. And so that's just a little run through Isaiah 52 verse 13 through uh, Isaiah chapter 53, just a little discussion of the content of that. Now let's see how it's used in, in the New Testament. As we said earlier, it's alluded to or quoted at least seven times, at least. Uh, may, maybe more, we'll see that that's a real possibility, maybe more, but at least seven times. And so let's look at, let's look at those. The first one we're going to look at is over in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 and verse 21. In this passage, Paul uses it as he discusses his, his mission, his work among those who had never heard the gospel. So that's where Paul liked to go. He, li- he liked to go to areas that, where the gospel had never been heard before, where it's never been preached before. And so he wanted to go there and, and preach the gospel. He's discussing that. And so verse 20 of Romans 15 says, Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. It's a quotation from Isaiah 52 verse 15. So Paul is, Isaiah talks about the gospel going to those who never heard it, who wouldn't understand it. And so Paul says, that's what I'm doing. We might say, I like to go where the gospel has never been heard, as Isaiah said, and then quote that to describe his his mission. The second place we'll look at is in Romans chapter 10. Same book, the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 and verse 16. 
So in Romans chapter 10, Paul is discussing the fact that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, all of them can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And so you see that in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, which incidentally is a quotation of Joel chapter 2. And then verse 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him on whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good, of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. And so Paul went out in his experience. He knows not everybody, not everybody accepts the gospel. Not everybody embraces it and, and obeys it. There are lots of people, the majority of people, might hear it but reject it. Just like Isaiah said, Lord, who's believed our report? Now John quotes this particular passage in an interesting way. John chapter 12 and verse 38, he elaborates on it a little bit more than, uh, than Paul does here. In John 12 verse 36, it says, These things Jesus spoke, and He went away and hid Himself. But though He had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing on Him. And so Jesus performed many signs, and, and yet in spite of that fact, they didn't believe on Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this is the reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw His glory, and he spoke of Him. And so, I, John is putting several passages from Isaiah together there. And so he's talking about the experience of Jesus. He's going and he's teaching the good news about the kingdom. People are not accepting what, even though he does lots of miracles, people still reject him. It's just like Isaiah said, Lord who has believed our report. The words of Isaiah are fulfilled in the rejection of the gospel by many who hear it. God has spoken to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember the vision that Isaiah sees of the Lord? And he tells him, the Lord tells him on that occasion that many would not believe his message. Isaiah 6 and verse 10. And so Isaiah says, these things are the fulfillment. Notice that word, these things are the fulfillment of what Isaiah uh, talked about. There's another use of Isaiah 53 in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is performing uh, miracles. Verse 14, Jesus came into Peter's home. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to, what was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases. And so there Matthew takes this statement from Isaiah 53 and verse 4 and applies it to the work of healing, miraculous healing that Jesus did. Of course Jesus of healing, Jesus' miracles of healing were really signs that He had come to reverse the effects of sin. 
And so he not only healed physical sickness, but he could heal spiritual sickness as well. And so he's the great physician that has come to heal us of our spiritual sin. And he indicates that he has the authority to do that by healing people of their diseases. You remember the man who was brought to Jesus on the stretcher and they led him down through the roof. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, they're taken aback by that. And Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. And so he did. And so his healing the man of his physical infirmity is a sign that Jesus has the authority to heal us of our spiritual sicknesses and infirmities. Matthew uses Isaiah 53 and verse 4 in support of that. And then Peter uses this as well. Uh, Andy talked about 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking about Christ and the example that He left for us and that we ought to walk in His steps, follow His example. Verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. That's a quotation from Isaiah 53 in verse 9. And so you can see Isaiah 53 is really, as we said, sort of at the heart of gospel preaching in, in the New Testament. It's used in various ways and in various passages. In fact, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, not only does Peter quote this particular verse, but Isaiah 53 really kind of provides the foundation for the whole passage. And so let's continue. While being reviled, he did not revile, in, uh, he did not revile in return. When, while suffering, he uttered no threats. He was silent. As Isaiah 53 says, he was, he was silent. Now he doesn't quote Isaiah 53, but you can hear the echo of Isaiah 53 there. Kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Again, another echo of Isaiah 53. And so when I said earlier that it's quoted and used at least seven times, really more than seven times. Now quoted seven times at least. But the ideas found in Isaiah 53 really run all through the New Testament. And then let's take a look at the next passage, Luke chapter 22. So Jesus is preparing the disciples for the coming trial and, and crucifixion and so forth. And so in the process of that, in the process of, of preparing them, he quotes from Isaiah. And so here's Luke 22, verse 37. I tell you that this much is, is written, uh, must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And so he's preparing them for the coming trial, and he says, now these things have to be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, how is Jesus numbered with the transgressors? Well, a couple of different ways, I suppose. Uh, one is he was crucified along two thieves. And so his association with these thieves who are deserving of their execution associates him with the transgressors. But just the act of crucifixion itself. Now, crucifixion was executed against the criminal, you know, against the offender, the transgressor. And so the very act of crucifixion associates Jesus with the transgressors. He takes our sin, He bears our sin on the cross. 
So Jesus quotes this as he prepares his disciples for his upcoming crucifixion. I'm going to come back to that one. There are passages in the Gospels that highlight Jesus' willingness to go to the cross. They highlight his refusal to resist, his silence before his accusers. All of those passages may well be allusions to, may not the right quotations, but allusions to Isaiah 53. In Luke chapter 22, we're here in Luke chapter 22, and verse 54, having arrested him, they led him away. That's the kind of terminology we find in Isaiah 53. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And so here we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus being led, being led away. And of course, he did not answer. Look at Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verses 59 and 60. Uh, the chief priests are accusing him, uh, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer. Verse 60 says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Remember, he didn't open his mouth. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Or rather, uh, um, Isaiah 53, verse 7. In in Mark chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, their Pilate uh, is questioning Jesus. And he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate questioned him again. Do, do you not answer? See how many thing, charges they bring against you? It's kind of like, don't you hear what they're saying about? Don't you have anything to say in defense of yourself? Don't you hear what they're saying? <laughs> and so Mark and Luke highlight the refusal of Jesus to respond, to, to resist. And so He's not absolutely silent. He does speak, but, but there's no, there are no words of, of resistance. Now, the most obvious place where this is quoted is in Acts chapter 8. At least it's the most obvious to me, and, and maybe to you as well. Acts chapter 8. This is the account of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and you remember that Uh, The Ethiopian is riding in his chariot. Uh, The Spirit directs Philip to go and and join himself to to this man riding in his chariot. And Philip can hear him reading. And the passage of Scripture he was reading was this, verse 32. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. Note the Ethiopian's question. Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Who's the prophet talking about here? This man that's taken away, being led as a sheep to the slaughter. Is he talking about, is the prophet somehow going to experience some sort of mistreatment and trial and slaughter, maybe even be killed? And in some way, in some way, do that on behalf of the nation. Maybe it's a reference to the nation itself, that the nation itself has to go through this Babylonian captivity and, and, and suffer this trial and mistreatment. And maybe, and maybe that in some way will atone for the past sins of the nation. Is, is the prophet talking about himself or some, someone else? In verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture preached Jesus to him. And so... 
he explained, no doubt, some of the things that we've been trying to explain. Now, I don't know how long Philip talked to him. <laughs> they're riding in, in the chariot, and he could have talked a long time, couldn't he, as they're riding along, telling him about Jesus, drawing from Isaiah 53, and, and telling him how Jesus makes atonement for sin by submitting to the will of the Father. It's not what people expected. The message is not understood by many and is rejected. God has highly exalted Jesus by raising Him to His right hand and seating Him there in a position of authority. He could have told Him about the mystery of the servant, the atonement, the submission, the exaltation. But as the Ethiopian goes along, as they're riding along, they come to some water. And the Ethiopian says, here's water, why hinders me from being baptized? And so this discussion rooted in, based on Isaiah 53, explained to the Ethiopian by Philip as fulfilled in Jesus, brings the Ethiopian to the understanding that he needs to be baptized. He needs to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of his sins. And he does, and he goes on his way rejoicing, verse, verse 39. And so, this is the, probably the most lengthy discussion of Isaiah 53 and how it's used in the New Testament. All this shows us that there's connection, there's continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. In some ways, it's, there's a disconnection, discontinuity. We talked about that last week. But there, there's a theme that runs through the entire Bible. And the theme, of course, is Christ and the atonement that, that He makes. And that helps us to see that God has a plan, that God has had a plan throughout the ages that He's worked out through individual people in human history, men like Abraham and, and David and, and Christ. And He's worked out that plan to make atonement for our sin so that He might have fellowship with us, so that we might have fellowship with Him. And of course, we're the beneficiaries of, of that great plan. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that Paul would go to the synagogues, in this particular passage, the synagogue at Thessalonica, and he would reason with them from the Scriptures. Oh, you got to think Isaiah 53 was one of those, don't you? I, I, as much as it's used in the New Testament, as, as central as, as it is to gospel preaching in the New Testament, you got to think when, Isaiah, when, when Paul went to the synagogues, Isaiah must, 53 must have been one of those passages he depended on. It's not inaccurately called the summit of Old Testament literature. We think about it often. As we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, we think about Jesus as that lamb being led to the slaughter, not for his own transgressions, but to bear our transgression, to bear our sin on himself, so that we might have peace with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are in, in awe of your great wisdom and your great might. We're, we're in awe of the great plan that you had in your mind in eternity, a plan to save sinful men and women. Father, we're thankful that your mercy and grace and love is shown in that plan, the plan that centers upon Christ himself, that you worked out that plan through the ages. And that simply shows us your strength and ability, your wisdom and power, as you bring this about, you bring this to pass in Christ. Father, again, we stand in awe of you. We, we are amazed 
by these things. As we look at passages like Isaiah 53 and how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we, again, Father, we, we don't know what to say. We're just in awe of your greatness. Our Father, we pray that we will come to an understanding and appreciation of the things that you've done, that we will accept the truth that you have revealed to us in Christ, the truth of the gospel, and that we'll accept that and obey it, and we will have the hope of eternal life that the gospel provides. We thank you, Father. We express our gratitude to you. We pledge our service to you in light of these things. We ask this and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. If you're not a child of God, if you're not a, a disciple of Jesus, and would like to